Okay, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. Last week, it was, kind of, it was an intense lesson, and I think it was an eye-opener, too. And, and we can see that, that Jesus was so in tune with his disciples, and when they were on the Mount of Olives, and they were looking at the temple, and when they, when they were looking at it in the, in the external, when they were more consumed with the beauty of the temple than what was going on inside the temple, I think Jesus said, you know what, well, we've got to have a talk. And so he sat them down on the Mount of Olives and he, he said to them, I have to tell you the truth, it's not going to be long before you will know that every stone on this temple that is so beautiful, well, it's going to be smashed to bits. Every, there will not be one stone on top of the other one. And I mean, that was a jolt for them to hear. So then they said, well, when, when is that going to be? What should, be, what should we be looking for? And Jesus then sat him down on the Mount of Olives. And then he started giving them the Olivet Discourse. And I know for many of you, that was a new term. But I hope you never forget it. And, and Matthew 24 is even more detailed. And what it is, is just the talk of the end times. But it's revelation kind of all summed up into just these few verses. But he wants the disciples, he wants us to know that the world is not going to get any better. I know we love to think that, that if we would get a certain leader or a different kind of government or whatever, but no, the word of God says that this earth is not going to get any better. But he says, these are the signs you can be looking for. But, but when you start seeing these signs, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid at all because you, believe it or not, are, are in the middle of the process. Now, we're not in the tribulation yet, but when Israel became a state again in 1948, that set the clock ticking. And we can know that now we can't go backwards. We are moving forward to the day when Jesus comes back and he will make everything right. So for the believer... This is exciting. That's why he says, don't be afraid. This must happen. All of these things must happen. But for you, the believer, you have this blessed assurance of how it's all going to turn out. And so, you know, then he, he kind of gave the double prophecy. He warned them about 70 AD. But yet, being that there was a double prophecy, we can take the same prophecy of 70 AD and see it for the way it's going to be when Jesus comes back. That's why I remember I said, Spurgeon himself said, take heed of what happened in 70 AD, which is now history to us, but take a look at how that all transpired, and may that be a dress rehearsal for you. Because it is so many warnings. I mean, like when he said, when you see the enemy start encompassing your city, get out of town. And for those who didn't listen, those who were out of town and didn't go into the city, who listened to God's words. And see, that's the thing. If you are willing to listen to me and believe that my word is true and you take heed of what I'm saying, 
It will so profit you. Now we know, looking back as I studied 70 AD, what happened there, the cocky Jews who thought, ah, it's not going to happen. It's not, oh, God's saying that. It's just, oh, you know, it's not real. Well, they've got the, they've got the statistics. 1.1 million died. 97,000 went into, went into um, like prisoners of war type thing. And those who obeyed, there wasn't one fatality. And so that's why, you know, I think Spurgeon said, Look at that. It happens. Do not contradict what God says he does. So be in tune when you, when you start seeing the signs. Don't be afraid. You know it's coming. And, you know, like I said, whether you believe that we're going to be raptured out of here, like I said, that is my vote. I truly believe that his children are going to be way out of here. Because I want to believe I'm one of the multitude that comes back with him when his feet come back and hit this earth. Because it says when he's on the white horse, the multitudes will follow. And I just want that to be, I want to be one of them. I want to watch that. I just can't wait till he opens up his mouth and the sword, the words of Jesus himself and all those smarty pants that think they could do it all on their own. And they're ready with all their militant they're all of their stealth bombers and all their equipment, and they're thinking they're going to blow them out of the sky, and all he does is open up his mouth, and they drop dead. And Jesus says to John, write this down. Tell the birds they're going to have a feast like they've never had before. That's quite the story. So the thing is, whether you believe in the rapture war or whether you believe, you don't believe in the rapture, but you believe that, and of course, that Jesus is coming back. But the phrase that I think we have to be, be very concerned about is, how can you escape? How can you escape what's going to happen? Because the fact is, this earth, as we know, will be destroyed. So how can we escape being one of those and really, whether you believe in the rapture or you don't, how you escape the, the judgment on this earth and then the eventual judgment face-to-face, -face, it's through Jesus. It's the only way you can escape. Follow the terms of, for God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus, that you're one of the whoever believes in him. You won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. That is the only way. So that line in there was very important. And that's why I don't, get, I don't get stuck on how people interpret about the rapture or not. I don't, I don't get all worked up about that. But I do get worked up about that phrase. So how are you going to escape what's going to happen inevitably? And that is through Jesus. So that's what he wanted to warn his disciples. He wanted to warn you and I about. Because the more you're warned, the more it won't throw you off. The more you're warned, you, you, you don't get surprised, and, and you're ready for it. You're prepared for it. So we can look at all of this in such a different perspective, with such a different attitude. So after that, then, then Jesus, you can tell, we're in the last day and a half. And, and so, and what does Jesus, what does Jesus want in that 22nd chapter? Oh, and just let me tell you right off the bat, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in this 
than this chapter. And so I don't want you to be fearful that you're going to be here till one in the morning because there's 70 verses. I'm just going to tell you that right now. We're only going to go through verse 38. So that's how far we're going to take it tonight. So as we start this chapter of Luke 22, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. See, they don't give up, do they? They don't listen. He's tried. Look how even in the last couple of weeks, how we talked to them with a, another parable, which the Bible says very clearly that they knew what he was talking about. And he was talking about them. But they still chose to close their heart to close their spiritual eyes and ears from the truth. And it says the reason they wanted to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. And they weren't afraid for their physical lives. They were afraid that they were losing leverage. They were afraid that they people were turning away from them. And that's what they were afraid of. So let's get rid of the culprit so that people then come back and listen to us and believe we're the heroes. So you look at that, and how, how in the world, I've said this every week, it seems like as, as I've been studying, how can they be so cold? How can they be so, how can they not hear this and recognize? And when they do recognize, why don't they do something about it? What is the matter with these religious leaders? And then you read, then Satan entered Judas. Now how in the world can that be? He was one of the 12. He was with Jesus every minute of every day for three years. How can this be? I'm looking at these verses, and I know this is such a hard problem. And that's what Jesus has been after us. He's been showing us that the exterior is not the most important part of you. How much effort are you putting on the inside of you? Because these kind of actions happen only when your heart is evil. And how can Satan enter Judas? How can that be? And my simple answer is because he could. There was room. And why was there room in Judas's heart? Because it wasn't filled with Jesus. Along the way, he did not fill his heart with Jesus. So what keeps... What, what changes your evil heart into a pure heart? What keeps Satan from being able to possess you? And this, the answer again is Jesus and the cross and our, humble, our humbling ourselves to see ourselves the way we truly are in desperate need of a Savior. Then we know don't we? Like Paul said, you want to be included in Christ? Well, you hear this gospel you choose to believe it, and then you're gifted. You are given a gift like you've never had before. Ephesians 1.13, that's what I'm quoting here. The gift is his Holy Spirit that now takes over your heart. He now possesses your heart. And when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, possesses your heart, there's no way Satan can. Isn't that a relief? But I say beware. 
You know, I, I had kind of a tough week, and I was thinking to myself, why is this week, why is it so, why is it a little harder than normal? And then it was very obvious when I saw we're going to be dealing, I don't like to give Satan the time, but when his, when it, his name is right in here a couple of times, we got to deal with him. And so, yes, Satan can possess a heart, but he can if you've been to the cross of Christ and the Holy Spirit possesses your heart. But like I said, don't get spiritually cocky about that because Satan still can maneuver. He can be a headache. He can be more than a nuisance. He can dangle your own self in front of you. And we as human beings, this chapter, Jesus wants us to see that he understands human nature and how we are compelled and drawn and trapped into it. That's why we so need to desire the power of God's spirit. We need to desire to listen to the spirit's voice because by nature we are just drawn with no effort at all listening to our own because Satan's just dangling ourselves in front of him and we love that. So it is still something we have to deal with every day. That yes, he I picture him with black claws and he just loves to dig them in my shoulder and just loves to maneuver me around. But unfortunately here, it was more than just a maneuver. It's that he entered Judas because he could. Because Jesus, Judas hadn't done anything personally with Jesus. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. I've said this a million times. How in the world could he do that? How in the world could he betray? He heard the same teachings. He saw the same miracles. He witnessed the lives changed. He even saw his 11 companions you know, he saw what was happening to them. Why, why didn't he want that? We have been conceived and we are, we've been, and we were born with an evil heart. It's just the way it is. We have been born with an evil heart. So the question really is, how can we change that? How can we change an evil heart into a pure heart? And yes, it is Jesus, it is the day of salvation, but it is also, because how do you keep your heart pure? Because we know that on the day of our salvation, we were given this white robe, pure white, and I kind of look at it, maybe it's just because of my personality, but I believe that that white robe of righteousness is not only white, it is sparkling white, that we sparkle white. It stands out because we are now wearing the white robe. But I'm thinking to myself, how does that sparkling white robe of righteousness stay sparkling white? Because if we are not, if we are not aware and we let self just kind of maneuver, even after we know that, that the Spirit possesses us, 
But because Satan is alive and well and still appealing to our flesh, and because sometimes our heart leaks of the Holy Spirit, and then there's just enough room for Satan to just kind of work his dirty, dark magic in our lives. And you know what happened then? That sparkly white robe of righteousness, now we can't lose it. There isn't anyone or anything that can yank that robe off us. But I do believe that if we aren't careful and we get lax, I believe that that sparkling white robe can, can get to be a dull gray. And then we start blending in. When we start compromising and we aren't willing to stand up and, and with courage and strength for the gospel, for what's right. And we too are fearful of what someone else might say or name they might call us. And when we start compromising, our sparkle white is gone and it gets a dull gray. So how do you get the sparkle back? It's not Clorox either. It's far more serious than Clorox. You know, sometimes when we talk about we need to go back to the cross, that is not a place you go once for salvation. It's a place where you and I keep going back because we're reminded what happened there. And when we get off the track and when we unfortunately have taken a pure heart that he's given us because we, we haven't taken his word seriously, we have not committed to it. We, didn't, we don't really believe that it's the only book I need. And we start then drifting. I'll tell you, you go back to the cross and he is right there with his special kind of bleach. And we get back on track and we can get back into that place where our robe is standing out. But what's so sad here is that Judas, now being totally led by the, by the devil himself, which, by the way, I went through scripture. The Bible is full of names for the devil. I, I was really quite surprised. And I didn't even, I don't think I even found all of them, but we know Satan, the devil, tempter, ruler of demons, Beelzebub, the evil one, enemy, liar, father of lies, murderer, ruler of this world, god of this age, adversary, dragon, old serpent. And we know that he deceives as the angel of light. He goes back and forth on this earth like a roaring lion to see who he can devour. Those are all names that describe our enemy. So we've got to deal with that reality. He is someone to contend with, believe me. He is powerful. He's more powerful than you and I. But he is not more powerful than the Holy Spirit that's in you and I. So make sure we remember that. But right now, this is what maneuvers Judas to go to the chief priest and act like a big shot. 
I am, I am so sure that he's walking into that, that group of religious leaders and boy, do I have, do I have an answer for you? Do I have a way I can help you with this? Oh, they are so excited about that. He discussed with them how, how he might betray Jesus. This is what they've been looking for. I think because, you know, we know Judas was the treasurer in the ministry of Jesus. We know he loved money. That he was very concerned about when people extravagantly gave to Jesus. Like the alabaster perfume. Oh, could that have been used for far better use? We know his heart was so pathetic. So here, I think this is some greed. He goes there. He says, I can be a big shot. I can be the big arrow here. I can, I can handle this. I know. I got the scoop. How much, how much can we deal with here? Maybe, maybe it was Judas that said, now how about 30 pieces of silver? How does that go? Because it says they were delighted and they agreed. So it was probably Judas that came up with 30 pieces of silver. And they were a, a delighted, agreed, and gave him the money. He consented, watched for the opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no, when no crowd was present. Now, his whole eyes are starting to watch for one purpose. That's what happens when Satan starts taking over a life. Then it's all about self. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread, and on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, how long have they been doing this? I mean, this has been going on for hundreds of years. And it, just a little brush-up review of why it all came to be. All you have to do is go back to the book of Genesis, or go back to the book of Exodus, don't you? We know that the God's chosen people were under the iron hand of the Egyptians, being tormented in bondage. And just at the proper time, God raised up a man named Moses. Even though Moses felt very inadequate, and came up with umpteen excuses. And when he said to God, would you please send someone else, he said, God burned with anger. God had a plan, and he's going to fulfill that plan, and he did use Moses. And then we know the story of how when it was the right time, God told Moses there's going to be plagues. There's going to be plagues. And we have heard that story for so many years but did you ever wonder why in Exodus, why at certain times during the plagues, when Pharaoh was so tempted to let the people go, it said, and God hardened his heart. I remember when I read that the first time, I thought, well, that really doesn't make sense because aren't these plagues for the purpose of letting the people go? And if Pharaoh's going to let them go, why would God harden 
the heart of Pharaoh so that he would change his mind. But all you have to do is go deeper into the truth of that story and and be well aware that every one of the first nine plagues represented a god that the Egyptians worshipped. Little g, absolutely. There was a god that they had that looked like a frog, and can you imagine people worshipping it? But there was a reason why God did those nine plagues and why he hardened Pharaoh's heart because he he wanted to show them that he was sovereign, that he was superior, that he was alive and real. And so by the end of those nine plagues, he was not going to let Pharaoh let the people go. People were not going to be delivered because of some frogs. But all of it had a reason so that by the end of those nine plagues, there was not one Egyptian that could say that their God was more powerful than the one and only Almighty God. There was a plan and a purpose. But then we know the tenth plague. But this, this was the whole reason. Then now we start to see as the details of this night start to materialize. And we see the instructions where Jesus says, I, I need you to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost and then the angel of death will come by. And it will not affect your firstborn. How we now know the story and we see that that story is the central focus of deliverance, the redemption of God's people. And then we watch as they, they left, and, that, and then in Exodus 12, God says to Moses, because see, the, the Passover itself transpired really quite quickly. You know, the leavened bread is because they had to be ready. They didn't have time to let it rise. They had to quickly bake it so that they would be ready to go when God said go. So all the details of the Passover were explicitly perfect, and they, they represented Jesus, which, which now we look back, and it just fits them perfectly. The sacrificial lamb, the, the unblemished, the unleavened bread, the details that the Jews still commemorate today because they don't believe that Jesus... They don't believe the Messiah came yet. So they still are following these rituals. But because in Exodus 12, God told them that they must. God said to Moses, now you instruct the people every year to have this ceremony so that you remember of how I delivered Israel, how I redeemed them from the bondage of the Egyptians and another reason, not just so that you remember, but as the, as the years go by, you are able to instruct your children. So when they have to eat different kind of meat or different kind of bread, or they have to follow these, these certain specific ways of doing the Passover, when they say, why do we do this? This bread doesn't taste normal. That they have the opportunity to be able to say, do I have a story for you? Because 
God delivered us. And that had to be passed down. That story had to be passed down so that they would always know what God did for them. Because as, as the generations transpired, you, you can't help but look at that verse in Judges after Moses died and after Joshua died. That verse in Judges just haunts me because it said, after Joshua, the very next generation didn't even know about that story. They didn't even know about the deliverance out of Egypt. They, they didn't even know. Can you imagine telling your kids about the Red Sea? Oh, could I ever yuck that up? And I have. I've loved telling my grandkids about that story. So why in the world didn't the next generation know about the Red Sea and Moses and the plagues? Sounds like they didn't tell them. Because they got a little lax. Because they didn't think it was that big a deal. They lost something along the way. They didn't keep it going. So it's very important. Very important part. The Passover is so important because it does represent the future that we're going to see come to flourishing. They looked at it as a future. We're looking at it now in Luke chapter 22, how it's coming to being. So then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. And again, look at Jesus' details. I mean, he had this planned. He knew the room. He knew that it would be quiet away from, from a lot of noise because this was going to be a very special night. He wanted it safe and secure because he knew what they were going to be doing to him. But he didn't want it too early. He wanted this time, so he had it all planned. And, and look how you know that he had it planned. Because he said, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, I know the first time, few times I read that, I didn't, I didn't really think anything about it. But then, after I read it again, I thought, what? What a way for Jesus to say, you're not going to miss it. You aren't going to miss the clues. Because look what he says. A man, a man carrying a jar of water. From what do you know, who carried the jars of water? Of course they did. The women carried the water. They, they went in the morning. Except for the woman at the well when at 12 noon that day because Jesus had an appointment with her. I mean, that's a whole other story. But we know that the women had this job. So when Jesus says, look for a man carrying the jar of water, oh, I won't miss this. That's unusual. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Jesus said, when you, when you 
say those words. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. All furnished. So it was going to have in it just what they needed. Make preparations there. Verse 13, they found, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And Jesus said these words. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He could not wait to take this Old Testament ritual that they were commanded to do every year, which kept them holding on to a future that the ultimate captive lamb would come. So Jesus says, I want, because look at, he says, I want to eat this. And I think he knows it is the last time I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again. I think Jesus is saying, I don't have to eat this again. You don't have to eat this again. You don't have to do this again. I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna solve all this. I'm gonna fulfill all of those symbols and rituals. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I will not drink of the vine until the fruit, until the kingdom of God comes. Sometimes I wonder if that's why Jesus declined at the cross because he didn't want to partake any more of this. I don't know, but he says it right there. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this until the kingdom of God comes, until he fulfills it all. And I think between verse 18 and 19, we see a major transition. He is now experienced the last Passover with the men he loves. But now he's transitioning to what we know as the Lord's Supper. Because look what he says. Words that we know so clearly. You're going to hear him say, keep doing this. It's like, that's what, that's what God told Moses in Exodus 12. Keep doing this so that you can be reminded and you can pass the story on. But now that he's fulfilling it, he's saying, okay, now we're going to change things up, but I still want you doing this all the time so that you remember, so you can pass it on. That you, that, that when your children ask you, why are, why are you eating this? Why are you drinking this juice? then you can tell them. What an opportunity to be able to tell them, oh, this bread represents when Jesus died. It's his body.
body. It's not really his body, but we, we look at it as his body because that reminds us. And then when we drink the juice, no, that's really not his blood, but it reminds us that Jesus shed every, every little drop of his blood on that cross for you and me. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That's why he said, this is my body. He took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. This is my body given for you. Do this. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I'll tell you, when you see the word new covenant, it should be such a rejoicing time for you and I because this new covenant, it's not the old covenant that God gave Abraham in Genesis 12. This is the new covenant that Jesus' blood has cleansed us from our sin and his spirit is now every day, minute by minute, transforming us into the likeness of his son. Into the likeness of Jesus himself. That's the spirit's job. This new covenant changed everything for you and I. And that poured out, poured out means he wasn't stingy. He poured it all out for you and I. That had to have been quite, I would like to watch the disciples' faces because that was quite a, they're going to have to process this one for a while. They have been following the Passover all these years since they can remember. And now Jesus is saying, no, I fulfilled that. We're changing it. This is what I want you to do now. This is the story I want you to tell. But then, it's like in verse 21, it's just like while they're still thinking about this, he's sitting around the table in that, in that big upper room, in the quiet and the safety and the security of that room that he's got with us, with those 12. And then he, he puts this on them. I think the wheels are just going, trying to figure this all out. But then Jesus puts this on them. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Do you think that was a jolt? I, I still am amazed at the fact that they had began to question among themselves which of them it might be, that there wasn't a time during those three years, even though Jesus knew that Judas was going to do that. Why would Jesus even picked Judas then if he knew that Judas was going to do that. Why would he even pick him? I think it's just so clear because he wanted you and I to see you can be religious, you can be raised in this, you can walk with Jesus for all these years, you can quote scripture, but unless you personally know him, you're lost. You're Evil heart does not change into a pure heart. So it's all about yourself. 
And Jesus is trying to transform us into it's not about me anymore. It's about him. He's transforming our lives with the new covenant. What a transformation. But Jesus never treated Judas differently. I mean, I try to think of my, my own sinful human nature. If I, if I knew that someone like Judas, I would have a tendency to maybe turn my back once in a while and not look at him. Or I would definitely have an attitude problem toward him. That it would definitely be noticed by the others that I couldn't help but treat him different. But somehow, some way, because Jesus is who he is, he loved Judas so unconditionally. And I never, and I hope that you never ever think that Judas was created with the purpose to betray the Savior. That, that was, that's why Judas was born. That that was God's intent. God doesn't work that way. You know, Judas would love to blame, but Judas had no one to blame but himself. So don't think that he couldn't help it because he was born for this. No, he wasn't. But that was his choice. And we've all had a choice from Genesis 3 on. Well, actually before Genesis 3, when he put that tree in the middle of the garden and he said, don't eat from it. Oh, I know that you're going to rub elbows with it and, and it's in the middle of the garden for crying out loud. So yeah, you're, you're going you're gonna to touch it. That's why it was such an exaggeration when Eve said to the devil, no, we can't, we can't eat it. No, we can't touch it. But God never said that. He knows that we live in this world. We're going to touch it. But he says, don't eat. Because once you eat of something, it becomes a part of you. And that's why we have since then, because God doesn't want us puppets. He wants us to choose from the depths of our heart And so as, as we move on and as, as they're wondering about who, who it's going to be, I'll tell you, you just wonder if Judas is squirming or whatever, but he just couldn't. He was remorseful, but he could not go to Jesus and say, I'm sorry. And what do we know about what Jesus says? You confess, you repent, I am faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you. That's what we know about our Savior. Jesus himself said, there isn't a sin, even blasphemy, against the Son of God. You come to him in repentance, he will forgive the only sin that is unforgivable is when you say to the Holy Spirit, I don't want him. I do not want a Savior. I don't need one. Jesus, Jesus was waiting for Judas, I think, up until the very end. And you say, well, what would have happened? I mean, this was prophesied. Well, yeah, it was because Jesus knew how it was all going to end. But I still say, we could have had a whole different kind of story here. 
if Judas would have if Judas would have listened and obeyed just like the other 11 I think this this whole bible right here could have been a whole different kind of story but because God knew what Judas choice was going to be I have a tendency to believe that God says I can use that and what an eye opener will be that he's betrayed by one one of the twelve. What an eye opener. And then look at verse 24. If this didn't bother you, I mean, you're talking about intimate teaching. And what are they doing? They're disputing among themselves which one of them was considered to be the greatest. See, this is so the chapter on how deal how Jesus is dealing with human nature and how he understands human nature and how we are pulled to the natural way of thinking. I want to be better than her. I want to be more notable than her. I want a place of importance. I want to be noticed. It's just natural, sinful human nature. I don't really care what I have to do to get that place. I mean, we saw it in the religious leaders. We saw how an evil heart reacts. In one of the Gospels, when this happened at this very time, Luke doesn't tell this story, but we know that one of the Gospels tells us that right when they're disputing about who's the greatest, Jesus takes a towel and a basin of water and tells them to sit down. And he washes their feet. The lowliest and the yuckiest for the lowliest of servants. He is going to teach them a lesson. Now, he doesn't use that in this particular gospel. But boy, does he handle it beautifully. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles. Now, I want you to know that the kings of the Gentiles at this time, the Gentiles are still notorious for being those pagan, awful people that the last thing you want to be is a Gentile. So when Jesus uses this as an example, they're going to understand, oh, yeah, we're talking about the pagan, worldly people. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. So what is a benefactor? When I looked it up, it's real simple and makes perfect sense. It's somebody who wants all the credit. See, it's, it's the worldly way of looking at success. I achieved. I am. All because of me. Look what I've done. Look what, look what I've accomplished. That was who a benefactor was. But look in verse 26. He said, but you're, you're not like that. You're not, you're not to be like that. I don't want you like that. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And when he referred to the youngest, he's he's probably referring to like the youngest, like a child, and he's saying, and we know that children are valuable to Jesus. That's why when the disciples wanted to shush them away, Jesus looked at those sweethearts and said, let those little children come to me and don't prevent them because such is the kingdom of heaven. But when what did people think of children back then? It's not that they weren't loved, but they're really kind of worthless yet. They just take a lot of time. They can't contribute. If you want to take it even farther than a child, this is referral to maybe a social outcast, probably the kind of servant that took care of the dirty feet. So that's what Jesus is saying. He says, I want you to change your whole thinking. I mean, I know that the normal way of thinking is self-approval and self, you know, climbing the ladder and self being noticed, but I'm going to tell you, this is totally different. This is a totally opposite story. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? See, now this is when Jesus is going to say, I understand. I know what the normal answer to this question is. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves the ones at the table? And Jesus said, well, isn't it not the ones who are at the table? See, he knows that's, that's the normal answer. Of course, the one that's greatest is the one that's being served. Look what Jesus comes, but I am, but I am among you as one who serves. He just turns this and says, because he could have said, now one of you is the greatest, because I am. Because he is, but that is so not Jesus' character. In fact, he brings him to the point and says, I am the one who served. I'm, uh, but I am among you as one who serves. You can look at me and see, and you are going to see me serve all the way to the end of my life. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. So now he's going to come back and as he has painted the picture, I know what the natural answer is, is that of course those who are great get served. But he says, I want you to know the greatest is the one who's willing to serve because they know it's not about them. And I tried to, I tried, you know, you can tell Jesus is saying, and I tried to demonstrate that in the greatest of ways what service really looks like all the way to the end. And then he comes back and he wants to give them some kind of, I mean, such a wonderful positive because he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. This hasn't been an easy three years for you either. 
But now he's going to tell them about a special reward. In other words, he's saying, I am going to make it so worth your while. If you are willing to serve me and your life is not about you, it's about me. And you are willing to live your life like that. Do I have a surprise for you? I will confer on you. That word confer means I will grant upon you. I will bestow on you a title. I will confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the throne and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Can you imagine their jaw dropping when they heard, wow. Someday, he said, for you doing what you've done. And he's probably saying, and I know what's going to happen. And I know what what you're going to be doing for me. But because of your willingness to go to the end of your life for my sake, I want you to know it's coming I've conferred, I've granted on you a place at my table in my kingdom that I have a seat right by me for you. If that isn't making it worth your while, and he's saying the same thing to you and I, that special reward for willing to put ourself aside and make our life about him instead of ourselves. Even though Jesus says, oh, I know that's a battle because human nature just wants to think about themselves. Verse 31. Verse 31, I don't, I don't know, okay, as I'm in this story, and as Jesus finished saying those words, I think all of a sudden, I think he got chilled. I think chills just went through his body because the reality of what was at and what was going to happen to Peter. Because look at all of a sudden, he says, Simon, Simon. He calls his name twice. Anytime Jesus calls a name out twice. There is a reason for that. So he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Did, did a phrase in there catch your eyes? Satan has asked Satan had to ask Jesus' permission to sift him as wheat. When is the last time you thought about that God is in control? That can be such a flippant, overused phrase, but the reality of it is so true. Even though we have the God of this world, Satan knows, Satan knows that he's, he's kind of got quite the position right now over this earth. But just know that we have a God sitting on the throne who is in control of all things. And he's even control of Satan. And Satan has got to ask him permission. If you want, 
Turn in your Bibles to Job. It's right before the book of Psalms. And in this, in this story that I think we all know, but maybe you never looked at it like this before. It's right there, but I think sometimes we, we, don't, we don't go into depth studying it because it doesn't make sense. But if you combine Job 1 with Luke 22, it makes perfect sense. Job 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. We all understand that. I mean, we picture heaven that way, don't we? We picture heaven where the angels are around the throne, praising, singing, serving. So I don't have problems with that verse. But then as that verse continues, it says, and Satan also came with them. What? Satan came into heaven there, and he joined the angels. How do I know that that's where he went? Well, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? So Satan had to come from somewhere. Satan's answer was, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. So this isn't Jesus meeting Satan on his turf. This is Satan, Satan meeting the angels and, G- and God on his turf. I'm telling you, we often wonder why we need a new heaven. And I also believe that I have a Savior that weeps for me. Because as I, as I read in Luke 22, Jesus said, Satan has asked permission, but I've, but I've prayed for you. The verse in Hebrews that says we've got a Holy Spirit that intercedes for us when we don't even know what to pray. We've got someone who's praying for us. You combine all that together. So Satan can still enter heaven as we know it. Jesus is weeping when he sees how his children are being treated or when he's disappointed when we've fallen off the right track and we disappoint him. That hurts him. So I'm thinking, yeah, we do need a new heaven. And that doesn't happen until Revelation 21 because 21 follows 20 and it's in chapter 20 that Satan is thrown into hell and evil is now banished. And now we can go into Revelation 21. Then the Lord said to Satan, see, now look, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? So it was the Lord's idea. I looked at him, well, thanks a lot. But it was the Lord's idea. And he had a purpose. And and what I want us to see tonight, that there is such a difference between temptation and testing. Now, 
if you want, but James chapter 1, I think, explains it perfectly. James 1 chapter, well, James 1 verse 13 says, let me get to it in a minute. I had a bookmark, but it must have fell out, fallen out. So James chapter 1, here it is, verse 13. So when you're looking at this, you're thinking, well, did God tempt? No, he gave Satan permission to tempt. Because James 1.13 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor will he ever tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when Satan... When Satan dangles self in front of us, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin then gets full-blown. Okay, so God cannot tempt, but he can give Satan permission to tempt. But now I'm going to go back to verse 12 of James 1. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So Satan tempts. God gives permission because God's whole intent is because he said, Peter, I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. That you will not fall to this temptation. I want this temptation, it starts as a temptation, but I want it to turn into a test. I guess the best way I can describe it, and I don't always mean to use my voice, but it's the only thing that's so real to me. There's not a doubt in my mind that Satan is using the trouble that I have to shut me up. There's no doubt in my mind. But I also know that I serve a God who tests me because I need to be tested. My faith has got to be tested because, oh, I'm good at talking it. But he has to test me to make sure that my words and my belief system, the way it comes out in my life, is going to be solid, that my faith is growing solid. I need to continually be tested so that my faith can get more and more real, that I trust him more and more, that I love him more and more, because I've watched him supply everything that I need. So how can you tell? How can you tell? Is this a temptation of Satan to just strip me of my joy and make me quit and then it's all about me? Feel sorry for yourself. Give up. Throw in the towel. Or is it God saying, I got to test you because I want to know if your faith is solid and mature enough to stand against that temptation. So I guess it falls in my camp, doesn't it? It's my choice. How am I going to know the difference between a temptation or a test? 
It's the one I choose. It's so easy. The, the easier one is to fall into temptation because it appeals to my flesh. But I've got a savior who told me last week, don't be afraid. I will give you the wisdom and the words to be able to stand up tall, grab a hold of my outstretched right hand, pick up that cross, and follow me. I dare you. And what a difference it makes. So that's why, as we go on to the, in the story, Job chapter 1, verse 9, after God says, you know, have you tried Job because he's blameless? He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. Satan replies, does Job fear God for nothing? He's saying, of course he loves you. You've given him everything. You've put a hedge of protection around him. You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Everything he touches turns to gold. Oh yeah, praise God. Easy to do, but watch. Look at what Satan says. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. That's what Satan said. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your hands. So it's going to be a temptation from Satan, but God knows it's going to be a major test. And boy, does Job get an A+. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. We know later that Job gets boils and that, but I just want you to see this for an example. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Well, then you know what happened. His kids are all killed. His, his, his wealth is gone. All that he's got left is this nagging wife that you can't help but wonder why in the world didn't she just go down with it all? He'd have been better off. But then you think about it and you think, oh, there's another whole lesson in this. Because you know what? Job, Job's wife lost it all too. She was experiencing the same pain as Job was. She lost every one of her children. Can you even fathom? They lost their livelihood. Can you fathom that? So yes, Job's wife is in just as much pain as Job is. But I think God left this for you and I to see in our, in our crises. Because we all have, we're all a part of catastrophe or crisis sometime. And he wants us to see there's one of two ways you can go. In the middle of your crisis, are you going to go your way or are you going to listen to me? I mean, Lot's wife, or Job's wife, went exactly, just like Lot's wife, went exactly 
the way it is with self-pulling her. And to her, she just looked at Job and said, curse God and die. It is over. It's hopeless. She's ready to throw it all in. See, that's what happens. She fell to the temptation, didn't she? But we know what Job said. He's in this traumatic, horrific pain. And he says, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's what a crisis looks like when you dare pick up the cross and follow him, even though you hate it, you don't understand it, but you trust him. What a lesson on the difference to know that Satan's got to ask permission and you know that his, that our Savior's hope is that we dare stand up and be tested and get better and stronger because of it. And we plug our ears to what our flesh wants to do. So as we kind of finish this chapter or up to where we're going tonight, when Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, you say, but it did. So didn't, didn't Jesus' prayer work? He didn't fail. Peter, he failed by denying Jesus. But Jesus didn't say, he said, I prayed so that your faith wouldn't fail. Yes, it faltered. Oh, yes, it faltered big time. But Jesus could still see that his faith, his belief in him, did not fail. His faith faltered, but it did not fail. And Jesus could see that because look what he said. And when you have turned back, see, Jesus knew that down the road a ways, days later, they were going to be standing on a beach. And Jesus knew that he would confront Peter and he'd say, Peter, do you really love me? Oh Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you really love me? Oh Lord, you know how much I love you. Peter, do you really love me? Do you think that was coincidence? Of course not. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, okay, then. Now you're ready to feed my sheep. And what does Jesus say? And when you turn back, go up there and use this mistake and show that I'm ready. If you confess and repent, I will forgive. What an opportunity for you to testify to the fact that we make mistakes, that our faith will falter. But when he convicts us, we come back and we can use that mistake and we can, we can ensure the brothers don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. If you confess, he's there to forgive and to cleanse. What an opportunity for you. 
And then Peter comes back with, oh, Lord, I am ready to go to prison or to even death for you. You know, I believe he meant it. I really do. I believe Peter meant it. For as much as he knew, he, he knew he loved Jesus. But I don't think Peter understood the power of self. I don't think he understood the real power of evil and wickedness. And, and I don't think he really understood the power of his God. So he's just talking from, I love you and I will go to death for you. And Jesus had to come back with these words. I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me. Did you notice there was no more talk about that? There was no more on the subject. Jesus then says to them, or he asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? It's like, like for you and I, he's saying, go back to Luke chapter 9. And when Jesus sent out his disciples for the first time, don't you remember? He said, don't take another pair of shoes. Don't take any money. Take nothing. Because he wanted them to see that I will supply all your needs. He wanted them to learn that lesson. That's why he said, did you lack anything? No, nothing they said. Remember how Jesus said then, people will take care of you. And if they don't, wipe the dust from your feet and go on to the next. But then did you notice in verse 36, he said to them, but now. Times are changed. We've got a changed thing here. It's different now. But now, if you have a purse, take it. If you have a bag, take it. If you don't have a sword, sell your coat and buy one. He's saying, you thought it was bad here? Oh, believe me, it's going to get a lot worse. And I want you to be prepared. I want you to have provisions because I am not going to be right here the way you're used to having me here. You can't go running to me. You can, of course, they're going to learn that they can come to him after Pentecost. They know the power of God's spirit in them. But he's trying to say things are different because it is written and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. He's saying, remember when I told you that I was going to die, that I was going to be spit on and mocked? And Remember when I told you that? I told you also that three days later I'd rise. I think not only did they not want to hear that, I think they just pushed that whole message out of the way. Out of sight, out of mind. He's still here. Jesus had to do a rude awakening. It's here. It's going to happen. It's going to start happening in just a few hours. See, they didn't comprehend that. So they come back with, see, Lord, look here. We've got two swords. 
it. We, we've got it handled. These two swords, that is gonna, that's gonna take care of us. <laughs> and you look at when Jesus replied, that is enough. Until I really sat down and pondered this, I'm sure, like many of us, we look at that and Jesus, okay, good, good, you got two swords, that, that's plenty. I don't think that that's what he's saying here. When he said that's enough, he said, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. I have taught you. I have been the example for you. I have, I'm going to be given my life for you. I've warned you. I've laid it all out there. I couldn't have made it any plainer for you. That's enough. I'm done telling you. Now it's up to you. Now it's up to you to take what I've given you and you're going to find it's enough. You're going to find that everything I gave you, it's enough. No matter what obstacle you're going to be facing, no matter what martyr, whether it be chopping your head off or whatever, crucified upside down or whatever, I gave you enough. I gave you enough so you will be able to get through it. But it's, I think as we are winding up this book of Luke, I don't think it's coincidence that he's saying that to us too. Because I think Luke had everything in it that we need. That's why Luke researched it so that there's everything for understanding. That's enough. Now what are you going to do with it? Heavenly Father, you made it so clear. We are grateful. We are so grateful for you daring to be upfront with us in our face, checking our heart. And Father, you've explained it so perfectly enough. That's enough. What are we, what are we going to do with it? Father, may it be so true that we have seen the victory in the fact that you paid it all. And that when we were crucified with Christ, it is no longer I that lives. It is you that lives in us. A power that is beyond explanation. That's why we can resist the devil. That's why we can know that that Jesus does give Satan permission to tempt us. Because he knows that if we're willing to listen to his voice, and that if we, like James says, we stood the test, we will be stronger and better because of it. Father, we serve you because we love you. You've given life to us, eternal life. We were nothing. Before you reached out and touched us. And Father, because of the cross and and humbling ourselves to that reality, 
Father, we would still be lost. This would make no sense. We wouldn't even be here tonight. There would be no reason to lift our Bibles and say every word is true. But because we know it is, we lift our Bibles knowing this is life for us to live life abundant and victorious in the middle of crisis. Father, there, there is no more to say. You've given us everything we need. Thank you for your grace that's so undeserved, but you gave it to us. May we grab it, and may we take it and show our little part of the world. May our white robe of righteousness stay sparkling because we are working diligently with you to keep our heart pure. Father, there's no worse color than a dull gray. We've had enough now to teach us. Thank you for making it clear, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.